So we're going to sing a hymn now. It's entitled, Oh Holy Jesus. It's on your insert on page two. Uh, take a look there, if you would, with me for just a moment. Uh, during Lent, the sermon series that Vanessa and Heidi and I have been preaching has invited us to look anew at the, meet, the, the question of uh, if Jesus is the salvation of the world through his crucifixion, how does that happen? How is Jesus' crucifixion effective for our salvation? So the dominant uh, theology of the church in the West, certainly, is that of substitutionary atonement. That is to say that we are sinners, that we suffer from original sin, which is one of the understandings of the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, but it's only one of the theories. The other is that it's not an original sin. We have an original blessing. But the early church, the idea of original sin has dominated. And so somehow it was believed that a price had to be paid, some kind of atonement, some debt had to be paid to God for our sins. And as human beings, we were not adequate to pay this price, to make this sacrifice, which was sufficient for God to forgive us, which also says a lot about the theology of what we think about God, that God's sitting back there with, you know, a calculator with a spreadsheet on all us. But Christ, as the Son of God, is sufficient because he is actually God and therefore has enough to give. And so his crucifixion is the perfect sacrifice by which you and I are forgiven. That's, is, that, is that a fair summation of the doctrine of the substitutary? Yeah, I, I'm looking to the theologians of the room. Is that a fair a statement? Okay. To which I say, hooey. Did somebody applaud when I said hooey? No. Um, oh, it was, yeah, well, somebody did applaud. It was a hammer in the back. Okay. We don't suffer from original sin. When God created the humans, he said, God said, well, that's really wonderful. God isn't a harsh judge who's aloof and austere and just waiting to catch us out and to punish us. God the only description we have of God in the New Testament is what? God is love. So how does that make any sense that God wants to be satisfied, has to be satisfied, or else God won't love us? Some kind of insufficiency of God. It's the nature of God to forgive. So God doesn't have to be persuaded to forgive us, to love us. That's God's nature, God's desire. <clears throat> But a lot of our hymns suggest that this idea of substitutionary atonement is real. And so we've been reading, singing some of those hymns. This one, Our Holy Jesus, expresses it in very bald and, shall I say, depressing terms. Our Holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that man to judge thee hath in hate pretended, by foes derided, by thy own rejected, O oh, most afflicted, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason. Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord, twas I denied thee. I crucified thee. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and life's oblation, 
thy death of anguish and bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, listen, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on my, thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving or undeserving, as it were. So that's the theology we're looking at and trying to take a different, come arrive at a different conclusion. And so we're going to sing this, and then I'll read some scripture, and we'll talk about it a little more. Ah, holy Jesus, please remain seated.
So you get the idea there, right? That our deserving is punishment. But it's only because of Jesus' sacrifice that God will forgive us. I think that uh, some of this problem comes from our desire as human beings to fix the problems that cannot be fixed, to resolve the seeming tensions that exist within the paradox, which is Christianity. Christianity is built on a paradox that from death comes life. It's in losing that we receive. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in the first chapter, Paul writes that we are fools to worship God, a God who in Christ is sacrificed on a cross. The world considers us fools. Yeah, absolutely. As Vanessa pointed out in the very first sermon of this series, the use of the cross, whether with the body or without the body, either way, the use of the cross as the symbol of a religion, it's unique. <laughs> There's not another great world religion that uses an instrument of torture and death as its primary symbol. We are fools because we believe that out of the death, the sacrifice, the crucifixion of Jesus, we are saved. We say it, that words come trippingly off our tongue, but when we pause to think about it, well, how does that actually work? Why is that? And we want to solve the paradox. And so St. Anselm in the 12th century, wanting to solve the paradox, formulated the most complete uh, expression of this idea of substitutionary atonement. Paul, however, as the first theologian, as it were, of the church, is completely comfortable with the, with the paradox because he's a mystic. He understands that rational explanations, what is ultimately a mystery, is impossible. If what you want is reason, then don't come to Christianity. Go to philosophy. Study logic. But what if you want his life out of this paradox? Then we have something for you. So the title of the sermon um, is, uh, of all the things I've lost, it's blank, I miss the most. We've all lost a lot of things, right? Uh, I lose my pen every day, like 20 times. Um, but we've lost a lot in the past years, last few years, right? Uh, the normalcy, whatever that is, and we want to return to normalcy, whatever that was, and probably won't ever be again. But we've also lost a sense of security, of uh, that we are safe from danger. We've also lost, particularly in the last uh, five weeks, uh, a real loss of innocence that somehow the continent of Europe, which has been riven with blood and conflict for centuries, for 80 years was at peace, and now war is raging right before us in our very eyes, as it has been in Darfur, 
at the same time, and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and in the great suffering of the Uyghur people in China, uh, the Rohingya in, uh, in Myanmar, Burma. But somehow what's happened in Ukraine has really rattled us. We're losing something. My grandmother used to say, of all the things I've lost, it's my mind I miss the most. <laughs> I say that about three times every day. But it's really not what we lose in that sense, but it's... Well, let, let's read Paul and we'll, get, we'll see what he says. Uh, beginning at uh, chapter 3 in uh, verse 4. Uh, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, that is to say, in our earthly life, well, then I have even more than anything they might proclaim, because <clears throat> I was circumcised on the eighth day, in accordance with the Torah. I'm a member of the people of Israel. I'm not an uh, immigrant. I'm native-born. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the best of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm a Hebrew, born of Hebrews. That is to say, both of his parents were Jews. And as to the law, a Pharisee, he's got the five, all five. The Pharisees were the ones who were most particularly devoted to the fulfillment of God's word and will and law for the world in the time of Jesus. Jesus himself was probably a Pharisee, given his singular devotion to the law and its fulfillment. And a zealous persecutor I was of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Of course, it's in his journey to Damascus that the great persecutor of the church, Saul, is overcome by the resurrected Christ and is called to a different reality. Uh, the resurrected Christ gives uh, Saul a three-day timeout. When he comes back, he's no longer a persecutor of the church. He's the great proclaimer and evangelist of the church. So he, he, he's lost a lot. Not that these things are thrown over because they're rubbish. They're not rubbish. They're still effective. Paul says many places that he continues to be a devout, observant Jew. And yet they don't accomplish what he thought they were going to accomplish, which is to say being made right with God. That's what salvation means, to live in a right relationship with God. Being saved doesn't mean you don't go to hell. Sorry. But if that's what you came for, that's not what's on offer. Salvation is not protecting you from a lifetime, an eternity of suffering. Salvation is about living in the consciousness that you are the object of God's desire and love. That's what salvation is. To live in the conscious understanding that God loves you and that frees you from all the fear and doubt that afflicts us. We are unaware the degree to which the doctrine of original sin and substitutionary atonement is inculcated into the entire consciousness of the Western world, into our culture. Not just inculcated, but I would say infected. Because it diverts us from the deep understanding that God loves us. Why? Because God loves us. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, not because somehow God was convinced to let up on us, 
but because God desires us, wants us, wants nothing more than to live in a loving, conscious relationship with us. So he says, whatever gains I had, I've come to them to regard as a loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything that I have experienced before as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all these other things. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish doesn't really do justice to the Greek word. He says it's rubbish. Actually, what he's referring to is a bodily function. I'll leave it at that. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based in faith, I want to know Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection, sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Okie dokie. That made perfect sense, right? You all with me there? Say what? Greek uh, has uh, more verb endings, more verb forms than we have in English, and it also uh, a lot of declensions of nouns. So sometimes in the translation, the translators are confronted with how to adequately express what the Greek meant in English. And we sometimes do that through the use of prepositions. So we have here this uh, statement, I suffered the loss of all things, regarding them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteous of my own that I've gained by adherence to the law, right, his former life, but one that comes through faith in Christ. One that comes through faith in Christ. Faith is not a set of beliefs. Faith is not a body of theological affirmations. Faith is trust, a trusting relationship with God. And Paul says, how do we come to this? Because we trust in God, in Christ, or we, perfectly good translation, instead of faith in Christ, is through the faith of Christ. It's Christ's own trust in God that makes it possible for you and I to live in that same conscious, loving relationship with God. So in the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, we find the story of Jesus visiting the home of Lazarus. In the 11th chapter, Jesus had been called to Bethany because Mary and Martha were upset because their brother Lazarus was ill. By the time he arrived, he had died. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Poor Lazarus. Every time I come to that story, I think, leave the poor man alone. He's dead. But no, Jesus raises him from the dead. But Lazarus has to die again. He's not around anymore. He's not immortal. But after that, Jesus flees into the desert. He goes into the witness protection program. Because the authorities, not the mob, are after him. The authorities are after him. But then he comes back to Bethany just a week before he's going to go into Jerusalem. Here we are on the fifth week of Lent. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. You have to come at 10 o'clock. 
next week as we start worship at 10.15, but at 10 o'clock, the bagpipe band and the drums lead us around the church and into the building. We're all going to come streaming through those double doors at the back of Wakeman Hall next week. Now, if you love the bagpipes, you'll be disappointed to know that the bagpipes are not going to come inside this year. If you don't love the bagpipes, you'll be thrilled to know they're not coming inside this year. If you like your hearing to be maintained, you'll be really happy. But they're going to pipe us around. It's the beginning of Holy Week. Listen, the rest of the Gospels wouldn't mean hooey without the last week of Jesus' life. In Jesus' time, there were lots of itinerant preachers, there were lots of faith healers, there were all kinds of people who performed miracles, who, quote-unquote, raised the dead. Jesus was, you know, one of dozens. It's the last week of his life, particularly the crucifixion, then the resurrection, which makes him unique. So here we are in the fifth Sunday, just on the brink of Holy Week, in the same way Jesus in Bethany is just on the brink of going into Jerusalem. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus gave a dinner for him. (laughs) I love that. They gave a dinner for him. Martha served, of course, and Lazarus was at the table with them. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' disciples, the one who would betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief kept the common purse of the disciples, and he used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. Now this last phrase, you always have the poor with you, um, Many times people will hear that and they say, well, see, that justifies. We don't have to do anything about poverty because God said you're always going to have the poor with you, so just live with it. That's not what it says. It's not a normative statement. It's a descriptive statement. But more than that, it's a quote from the 11th chapter of Exodus, which would be well known to the people of Jesus because they were observant Jews. In the 11th chapter, God says you will always have the poor with you, therefore... Open your hand and be generous to them. That's really what they heard when he said that. But he also says, he, Mary knows something that none of the rest of you know. That I'm going to take it in the neck when I go to Jerusalem. Usually when you anoint somebody, you put the oil or the nod or whatever it is on the person's head as a blessing. Saul anointing David for instance. But you anoint somebody's feet when you're preparing them for burial. And it's his feet that she anoints and washes with her her hair. Now in the next chapter, chapter 13, Jesus will wash the feet of his disciples. Get it? 
the author is actually, you know, weaving the narrative here. When we break it up into little bits, we lose the overall flow. Mary washes his feet. He washes the feet of his disciples. It's an act of deep humility. The one who is the leader of the gang, Jesus, is the one who washes their feet like a servant, a paradox of servant leadership. Mary understands, in a way that the others do not, that the life of Jesus is an expression, embodiment, the incarnation of God's love for all of humanity will change the ways in which we define reality so that what seemed impossible will become possible and what seemed to be defeat will in fact become the source of victory. It's in the very subtle, sublime, active, nonviolent resistance to evil that Jesus changes human consciousness. Listen, the Romans won. They captured him. They tried him, quote-unquote. They crucified him. They buried him. They won. They remained in power for three more generations after Jesus' death. They seem to have won. But ultimately, in the final analysis, victory, accomplished by violence and evil, mendacity, is defeated by love. You can't explain that. You just have to live into it and accept it. To become like Paul, a person who will accept the paradox of our faith. To live in the manner that Jesus lived as challenging, and it is really challenging, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. And yet it is the way of life and of true freedom from all the doubts and fears that afflict us to grow into the consciousness that you and I and everyone we are the beloved children of God, the object of God's desire. Holy Week tells us in a way that could never be otherwise expressed that Jesus is aware of you. Amen.